0: section 10 part b of an introduction to the principles of morals and legislation this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by jc guan an introduction to the principles of morals and legislation by jeremy bentham chapter 10 section 3 CATALOGUE OF MOTIVES CORRESPONDING TO THAT OF PLEASURES AND PAINS From the pleasures of the senses, considered in the gross, results the motive which, in a neutral sense, may be termed physical desire. In a bad sense, it is termed sensuality. Name used in a good sense, it has none. Of this, nothing can be determined till it be considered separately with reference to the several species of pleasures to which it corresponds. In particular, then, to the pleasures of the taste or palate, corresponds a motive, which, in a neutral sense, having received no name that can serve to express it in all cases, can only be termed, by circumlocution, the love of the pleasures of the palate. In particular cases, it is styled hunger. In others... Thirst footnote. Hunger and thirst, considered in the light of motives, import not so much the desire of a particular kind of pleasure, as the desire of removing a positive kind of pain. They do not extend to the desire of that kind of pleasure which depends on the choice of foods and liquors. End footnote. The love of good cheer expresses this motive, but seems to go beyond intimating that the pleasure is to be partaken of in company, and involving a kind of sympathy. In a bad sense, it is styled in some cases greediness, voraciousness, gluttony. In others, principally when applied to children, licorishness. It may in some cases also be represented by the word daintiness. Name, used in a good sense, it has none. One, a boy who does not want, for victuals, steals a cake out of a pastry-cook's shop and eats it. In this case, his motive will be universally deemed a bad one, and if it be asked what it is, it may be answered perhaps licorishness. 2. A boy buys a cake out of a pastry-cook's shop and eats it. In this case, his motive can scarcely be looked upon as either good or bad, unless his masters should be out of humour with him. And then, perhaps, he may call it licorishness, as before. In both cases, however, his motive is the same. It is neither more or less than the motive corresponding to the pleasures of the palate. Footnote It will not be worth while in every case, to give an instance in which the action may be indifferent, if good as well as bad actions may result from the same motive, it is easy to conceive, that also, may be indifferent. And a footnote. To the pleasures of the sexual sense corresponds the motive which, in a neutral sense, may be termed sexual desire. In a bad sense, it is spoken of under the name of lasciviousness, and a variety of other names of reprobation. Name, used in a good sense, it has none. Footnote. Love indeed includes sometimes this idea. But then, it can never answer the purpose of exhibiting it separately, since there are three motives, at least, that may all of them be included in it. Besides this, the love of beauty, corresponding to the pleasures of the eye, and the motives corresponding to those of amity and benevolence. We speak of the love of children, of the love of parents, of the love of God. These pious uses protect the appellation, and preserve it from the ignominy, poured forth upon its profane associates. Even central love would not answer the purpose, since that would include the love of beauty. End footnote. 1. A man ravishes a virgin. In this case, the motive is, without scruple, termed by the name of lust, lasciviousness, and so forth, and is universally looked upon as a bad one. 2. The same man, at another time, exercises the rights of marriage with his wife. In this case, the motive is accounted perhaps a good one, or at least indifferent, and here people would scruple to call it by any of those names. In both cases, however, the motive may be precisely the same. In both cases, it may be neither more nor less than sexual desire. To the pleasures of curiosity corresponds the motives known by the same name, and which may be otherwise called the love of novelty, or the love of experiment, and on particular occasions sport, and sometimes play. 1. A boy, in order to divert himself, reads an improving book. The motive is accounted, perhaps, a good one. At any rate, not a bad one. 2. He sets his top a-spinning, the motive is deemed, at any rate, not a bad one. 3. He sets loose a mad ox among a crowd. His motive is now, perhaps, termed an abominable one. Yet in all three cases the motive may be the very same. It may be neither more nor less than curiosity. As to the other pleasures of sense, they are of too little consequence to have given any separate denomination to the corresponding motives. To the pleasures of wealth corresponds the sort of motive which, in a neutral sense, may be termed pecuniary interest. In a bad sense, it is termed, in some cases, avarice, covetousness, rapacity, or lucre. In other cases, niggardliness, in a good sense, but only in particular cases, economy and frugality and in some cases the word industry may be applied to it, in a sense nearly indifferent, but rather bad than otherwise, it is styled, though only in particular cases, parsimony. 1. For money you gratify a man's hatred, by putting his adversary to death. 2. For money you plough his field for him. In the first case, your motive is termed lucre, and is accounted corrupt, and abominable, and in the second, for want of a proper appellation, it is called industry, and is looked upon as innocent at least, if not meritorious. Yet the motive is in both cases precisely the same. It is neither more nor less than pecuniary interest. The pleasures of skill are neither distinct enough, nor of consequence enough, to have given any name to the corresponding motive to the pleasures of amity, corresponds a motive which, in a neutral sense, may be termed the desire of ingratiating oneself. In a bad sense, it is in certain cases styled servility. In a good sense, it has no name that is peculiar to it. In the cases in which it has been looked on with a favourable eye, it has seldom been distinguished from the motive of sympathy or benevolence, with which, in such cases, it is commonly associated. 1. To acquire the affections of a woman before marriage, to preserve them afterwards, you do every thing that is consistent with other duties, to make her happy. In this case, your motive is looked upon as laudable, though there is no name for it. 2. For the same purpose, you poison a woman with whom she is at enmity. In this case, your motive is looked upon as abominable, though still there is no name for it. 3. To acquire or preserve the favour of a man, who is richer or more powerful than yourself, you make yourself subservient to his pleasures. Let them even be lawful pleasures. If people choose to attribute your behaviour to this motive, you will not get them to find any other name, for it, than servility. Yet, in all three cases, the motive is the same. It is neither more nor less than the desire of ingratiating yourself. To the pleasures of moral sanction, or, as they may otherwise be called, the pleasure of a good name, corresponds a motive which, in a neutral sense, has scarcely yet obtained any adequate appellative. It may be styled the love of reputation. It is nearly related to the motive last preceding, being neither more nor less than the desire of ingratiating oneself with, or, as in this case we should rather say, of recommending oneself to, the world at large. In a good sense, it is termed honour, or the sense of honour. Or, rather, the word honour is introduced somehow or other upon the occasion of its being brought to view, for in strictness The word honour is put rather to signify that imaginary object which a man is spoken of as possessing upon the occasion of his obtaining a conspicuous share of the pleasures that are in question. In particular cases, it is styled the love of glory. In a bad sense, it is styled, in some cases, false honour. In others, pride. In others, vanity." in a sense not decidedly bad, but rather bad than otherwise, ambition, in an indifferent sense, in some cases, the love of fame, in others, the sense of shame. And as the pleasures belonging to the moral sanction run undistinguished into the pains derived from the same source, footnote, see chapter 6, pleasures and pains, paragraph 24, note, it may also be styled, in some cases, the fear of dishonour, the fear of disgrace, the fear of infamy, the fear of ignominy, or the fear of shame. 1. You have received an affront from a man, according to the custom of the country, in order, on the one hand, to save yourself from the shame of being thought to bear it patiently, footnote, A man's bearing an affront patiently, that is, without taking this method of doing what is called wiping it off, is thought to import one or other of two things. Either that he does not possess that sensibility to the pleasures and pains of the moral sanction, which, in order to render himself a respectable member of society, a man ought to possess, or that he does not possess courage enough to stake his life for the chance of gratifying that resentment, which a proper sense of the value of those pleasures and those pains it is thought would not fail to inspire. True it is that there are diverse other motives, but any of which the same conduct might equally be produced, the motives corresponding to the religious sanction, and the motives that come under the head of benevolence. Piety towards God, the practice in question being generally looked upon as repugnant to the dictates of the religious sanction. Sympathy for your antagonist himself, whose life would be put to hazard at the same time with your own. Sympathy for his connections, the persons who are dependent on him in the way of support, or connected with him in the way of sympathy. Sympathy for your own connections, and even sympathy for the public in cases where the man is such that the public appears to have a material interest in his life. But in comparison with the love of life, the influence of the religious sanction is known to be in general but weak, especially among people of those classes who are here in question, a sure proof of which is the prevalence of this very custom. Where it is so strong as to preponderate, it is so rare that perhaps it gives a man a place in the calendar, and, at any rate, exalts him to the rank of martyr. Moreover, the instance in which either private benevolence or public spirit predominate over the love of life will also naturally be but rare, and, owing to the general propensity to detraction, it will also be much rarer for them to be thought to do so. Now, when three or more motives any of them capable of producing a given mode of conduct, apply at once, that which appears to be the most powerful, is that which will, of course, be deemed to have actually done the most, and, as the bulk of mankind, on this, and on other occasions, are disposed to decide peremptorily, upon superficial estimates, it will generally be looked upon as having done the whole. The consequence is, that... When a man of a certain rank forbears to take this chance of revenging an affront, his conduct will, by most people, be imputed to the love of life, which, when it predominates over the love of reputation, is, by a not unsalutary association of ideas, stigmatized with the reproachful name of cowardice. On the other hand, to obtain the reputation of courage, you challenge him to fight with mortal weapons. In this case, your motive will, by some people, be accounted laudable and styled honour. By others, it will be accounted blamable, and these, if they call it honour, will prefix an epithet of improbation to it, and call it false honour. 2. In order to obtain a post of rank and dignity, and thereby to increase the respects paid you by the public, you bribe the electors who are to confer it, or the judge before whom the title to it is in dispute. In this case, your motive is commonly accounted corrupt and abominable, and is styled, perhaps, by some such name as dishonest or corrupt ambition, as there is no single name for it. 3. In order to obtain the goodwill of the public, you bestow a large sum in works of private charity or public utility. In this case, people will be apt not to agree about your motive. Your enemies will put a bad color upon it, and call it ostentation. Your friends, to save you from the reproach, will choose to impute your conduct not to this motive, but to some other such as that of charity. The denomination in this case, given to private sympathy or that of public spirit four a king for the sake of gaining the admiration annexed to the name of conqueror we will suppose power and resentment out of the question engages his kingdom in a bloody war his motive by the multitude whose sympathy for millions is easily overborne by the pleasure which their imagination finds in gaping at any novelty they observe in the conduct of a single person is deemed an admirable one. Men of feeling and reflection who disapprove of the dominion exercised by this motive on this occasion without always perceiving that it is the same motive which in other instances meets with their approbation deem it an abominable one. And because the multitude who are the manufacturers of language have not given them a simple name to call it by, they will call it by some such compound name as the love of false glory or false ambition. Yet, in all four cases, the motive is the same. It is neither more nor less than the love of reputation. To the pleasures of power corresponds the motive which, in a neutral sense, may be termed the love of power. People who are out of humor with it sometimes, call it the lust of power. In a good sense, it is scarcely provided with a name. In certain cases, this motive, as well as the love of reputation, are confounded under the same name, ambition. This is not to be wondered at, considering the intimate connection there is between the two motives in many cases, since it commonly happens that the same object which affords the one of pleasure, affords the other sort at the same time. For instance, offices, which are at once posts of honour and places of trust, and since at any rate reputation is the road to power. 1. If, in order to gain a place in administration, you poison the man who occupies it, 2. If, in the same view, you propose a salutary plan for the advancement of the public welfare. Your motive is, in both cases, the same. Yet in the first case it is accounted criminal and abominable, in the second case allowable and even laudable. To the pleasures as well as to the pains of the religious sanction corresponds a motive which has, strictly speaking, no perfectly neutral name applicable to all cases unless the word religion can be admitted in this character. Though the word religion, strictly speaking, seems to mean not so much the motive itself as a kind of fictitious personage by whom the motive is supposed to be created, or an assemblage of acts supposed to be dictated by that personage, nor does it seem to be completely settled into a neutral sense. In the same sense, It is also, in some cases, styled religious zeal, in other cases, the fear of God. The love of God, though commonly contrasted with the fear of God, does not come strictly under this head. It coincides properly with a motive of a different denomination, viz., a kind of sympathy or goodwill, which has the deity for its object. In a good sense, It is styled devotion, piety, and pious zeal. In a bad sense, it is styled in some cases superstition or superstitious zeal. In other cases, fanaticism or fanatic zeal. In a sense not decidedly bad, because not appropriated to this motive, enthusiasm or enthusiastic zeal. 1. In order to obtain the favor of the supreme being, a man assassinates his lawful sovereign. In this case, the motive is now almost universally looked upon as abominable, and is termed fanaticism. Formerly, it was by great numbers accounted laudable, and was by them called pious zeal. Two, in the same view, a man lashes himself with thongs, in this case, in yonder house, the motive is accounted laudable, and is called pious zeal. In the next house it is deemed contemptible, and called superstition. 3. In the same view, a man eats a piece of bread, or at least what to external appearance is a piece of bread, with certain ceremonies. In this case, in yonder house, his motive is looked upon as laudable, and is styled piety and devotion. In the next house, it is deemed abominable and styled superstition, as before. Perhaps even it is absurdly styled impiety. For, in the same view, a man holds a cow by the tail while it is dying. On the Thames, the motive would in this case be deemed contemptible and called superstition. On the Ganges, it is deemed meritorious, and called piety. 5. In the same view, a man bestows a large sum in works of charity, or public utility. In this case, the motive is styled laudable, by those at least to whom the works in question appear to come under this description. And by these at least, it would be styled piety. Yet, in all these cases, the motive is precisely the same. It is neither more nor less than the motive belonging to the religious sanction. Footnote. I am aware, or at least I hope, that people in general, when they see the matter thus stated, will be ready to acknowledge that the motive in these cases, whatever be the tendency of the acts which it reproduces, is not a bad one. But this will not render it less true, that hitherto, in popular discourses, it has been common for men to speak of acts which they could not, but acknowledge, to have originated from this source, as proceeding from a bad motive. The same observation will apply to many of the other cases. Footnote. To the pleasures of sympathy corresponds the motive which, in a neutral sense, is termed goodwill. The word sympathy may also be used on this occasion, though the sense of it seems to be rather more extensive. In a good sense, it is thought benevolence, in its certain cases, philanthropy, and in a figurative way, brotherly love. In others, humanity. In others, charity. In others, pity and compassion. In others, mercy. In others, gratitude. In others, tenderness. In others, patriotism. In others, Public spirit. Love is also employed in this as in so many other senses. In a bad sense, it has no name applicable to it in all cases. In particular cases, it is styled partiality. The word zeal with certain epithets prefixed to it might also be employed, sometimes on this occasion, though the sense of it be more extensive, applying sometimes to ill as well as to good-will. It is thus we speak of party-zeal, national-zeal, and public-zeal. The word attachment is also used with the like epithets. We also say family attachment. The French expression, esprit de corps, for which as yet there seems to be scarcely any name in English, might be rendered, in some cases, though rather inadequately, by the terms corporation-spirit. CORPORATION ATTACHMENT OR CORPORATION ZEAL 1. A man who has set a town on fire is apprehended and committed. Out of regard or compassion for him, you help him to break prison. In this case, the generality of people will probably scarcely know whether to condemn your motive or to applaud it. Those who condemn your conduct will be disposed rather to impute it to some other motive. If they style it benevolence or compassion, they will be for prefixing an epithet, and call it false benevolence, or false compassion. Footnote. Among the Greeks, perhaps the motive, and the conduct it gave birth to, would, in such a case, have been rather approved than disapproved of. It seems to have been deemed an act of heroism on the part of Hercules, to have delivered his friend Thesus from hell, though divine justice which held him there should naturally have been regarded as being at least upon a footing with human justice. But to divine justice, even when acknowledged under that character, the respect paid at that time of day does not seem to have been very profound, or well settled. At present, the respect paid to it is profound and settled enough, though the name of it is but too often applied to dictates which could have had no other origin than the worst sort of human caprice. 2. The man is taken again, and is put upon this trial. To save him, you swear falsely on his favour. People, who would not call your motive a bad one before, will perhaps call it so now. 3. A man is at law with you about an estate. He has no right to it. The judge knows this. Yet, having an esteem or affection for your adversary, adjudges it to him. In this case, the motive is by everybody deemed abominable, and is termed injustice and partiality. For, You detect a statesman in receiving bribes, out of regard to the public interest, you give information of it, and prosecute him. In this case, by all who acknowledge your conduct to have originated from this motive, your motive will be deemed a laudable one, and styled public spirit. But his friends and adherents will not choose to account for your conduct in any such manner. They will rather attribute it to party enmity. 5. You found a man on the point of starving. You relieve him, and save his life. In this case your motive will, by everybody, be accounted laudable, and it will be termed compassion, pity, charity, benevolence. Yet in all these cases the motive is the same. It is neither more nor less than the motive of good will. To the pleasures of malevolence, or antipathy, corresponds the motive which, in a neutral sense, is termed antipathy, or displeasure, and, in particular cases, dislike, aversion, abhorrence, and indignation, in a neutral sense, or, perhaps, in a sense leaning a little to the bad side, ill-will, and, in particular cases, anger, wrath, and enmity. In a bad sense, it is styled, in different cases, wrath, spleen, ill-humor, hatred, malice, rancour, rage, fury, cruelty, tyranny, envy, jealousy, revenge, misanthropy, and by other names, which it is hardly worth while to endeavour to collect. Footnote. Here, as elsewhere, it may be observed that the same words which are mentioned as names of motives are also many of them names of passions, appetites, and affections, fictitious entities which are framed only by considering pleasures or pains in some particular point of view. Some of them are also names of moral qualities. This branch of nomenclature is remarkably entangled. To unravel it completely would take up a whole volume, not a syllable of which would belong properly to the present design. And footnote. Like goodwill, it is used with epithets expressive of the persons who are the objects of the affection, Hence, we hear of party enmity, party rage, and so forth. In a good sense, there seems to be no single name for it. In compound expressions, it may be spoken of, in such a sense, by epithets, such as just and laudable, prefixed to words that are used in a neutral or nearly neutral sense. 1. You rob a man, he prosecutes you, and gets you punished. Out of resentment you set upon him and hang him with your own hands. In this case, your motive will universally be deemed detestable, and will be called malice, cruelty, revenge, and so forth. Two, a man has stolen a little money from you. Out of resentment you prosecute him and get him hanged by course of law. In this case, people will probably be a little divided in their opinions about your motive. Your friends will deem it a laudable one, and call it a just or laudable resentment. Your enemies will probably be disposed to deem it blamable, and call it cruelty, malice, revenge, and so forth, to obviate which your friends will try, perhaps, to change the motive, and call it public spirit. 3. A man has murdered your father. Out of resentment, you prosecute him, and get him put to death in course of law. In this case, your motive will be universally deemed a laudable one, and styled, as before, a just or laudable resentment, and your friends, in order to bring forward the more amiable principle from which the malevolent one, which was your immediate motive, took its rise, will be for keeping the latter out of sight, speaking of the former only, under some such name as filial piety, Yet in all these cases the motive is the same, it is neither more nor less than the motive of ill will. To the several sorts of pains, or at least to all such of them as are conceived to subsist in an intense degree, and to death, which as far as we can perceive is the termination of all the pleasures, as well as all the pains we are acquainted with, corresponds the motive, which in a neutral sense is styled in general self-preservation the desire of preserving oneself from the pain or evil in question now in many instances the desire of pleasure and the sense of pain run into one another undistinguishably self-preservation therefore where the degree of the pain which it corresponds to is but slight will scarcely be distinguishable by any precise line from the motive corresponding to the several sorts of pleasures. Thus, in the case of the pains of hunger and thirst, physical want will, in many cases, be scarcely distinguishable from physical desire. In some cases, it is styled, still in a neutral sense, self-defence. Between the pleasures and the pains of the moral and religious sanctions, and, consequently, of the motives that correspond to them, as likewise between the pleasures of enmity and the pains of enmity, this want of boundaries has already been taken notice of. Footnote. See chapter 5. Pleasures and Pains. Paragraph Twenty Four, Twenty Five, and footnote. The case is the same between the pleasures of wealth and the pains of privation corresponding to those pleasures. There are many cases, therefore, in which it will be difficult to distinguish the motive of self-preservation from pecuniary interest, from the desire of ingratiating oneself, from the love of reputation, and from religious hope, in which case those more specific and explicit names will naturally be preferred to this general and inexplicit one. There are also a multitude of compound names which either are already in use, or might be devised to distinguish the specific branches of the motive of self-preservation from those several motives of a pleasurable origin, such as the fear of poverty, the fear of losing such or such a man's regard, the fear of shame, and the fear of God. Moreover, to the evil of death corresponds, in a neutral sense, the love of life, in a bad sense, cowardice, which corresponds also to the pains of the senses, at least when considered as subsisting in an acute degree. There seems to be no name for the love of life that has a good sense, unless it be the vague and general name of prudence. 1. To save yourself from being hanged, pilloried, imprisoned, or fined, you poison the only person who can give evidence against you. In this case, your motive will universally be styled abominable. But as the term self-preservation has no bad sense, people will not care to make this use of it. They will be apt, rather, to change the motive, and call it malice. 2. A woman, having been just delivered of an illegitimate child, in order to save herself from shame, destroys the child, or abandons it. In this case also, people will call the motive a bad one, and not caring to speak of it under a neutral name, they will be apt to change the motive, and call it, by some such name, as cruelty. 3. To save the expense of a half-penny, you suffer a man whom you could preserve at that expense to perish with want before your eyes. In this case, your motive will be universally deemed an abominable one, and, to avoid calling it by so indulgent a name as self-preservation, people will be apt to call it avarice and niggardliness, with which, indeed, in this case, it indistinguishably coincides. For the sake of finding a more reproachful appellation, they will be apt likewise to change the motive and term it cruelty. 4. To put an end to the pain of hunger, you steal a loaf of bread. In this case, your motive will scarcely, perhaps, be deemed a very bad one, and in order to express more indulgence for it, people will be apt to find a stronger name for it than self-preservation, terming it necessity. 5. To save yourself from drowning, you beat off an innocent man who has got hold of the same plank in this case, your motive will in general be deemed neither good nor bad, and it will be termed self-preservation or necessity or the love of life. To save your life from a gang of robbers, you kill them in the conflict. In this case, the motive may perhaps be deemed rather laudable than otherwise, and besides self-preservation, is styled also self-defense. 7. A soldier is sent upon a party against a weaker party of the enemy. Before he gets up with them, to save his life, he runs away. In this case, the motive will universally be deemed a contemptible one, and will be called cowardice. Yet, in all these various cases, the motive is still the same. It is neither more nor less than self-preservation. In particular, to the pains of exertion corresponds the motive, which, in a neutral sense, may be termed the love of ease, or, by a longer circumlocution, the desire of avoiding trouble. In a bad sense, it is termed indolence. Footnote. It may seem odd at first sight to speak of the love of ease as giving to action, but exertion is as natural an effect of the love of ease as inaction is, when a smaller degree of exertion promises to exempt a man from a greater. and footnote. It seems to have no name that carries with it a good sense. 1. To save the trouble of taking care of it, a parent leaves his child to perish. In this case, the motive will be deemed an abominable one, and, because indolence will seem too mild a name for it, THE MOTIVE WILL PERHAPS BE CHANGED, AND SPOKEN OF UNDER SOME SUCH TERM AS CRUELTY. 2. TO SAVE YOURSELF FROM AN ILLEGAL SLAVERY, YOU MAKE YOUR ESCAPE. IN THIS CASE, THE MOTIVE WILL BE deemed CERTAINLY NOT A BAD ONE. AND BECAUSE INDOLENCE, OR EVEN THE LOVE OF EASE, WILL BE THOUGHT TOO UNFAVORABLE A NAME FOR IT, IT WILL PERHAPS BE STYLED THE LOVE OF LIBERTY. 3. A MECHANIC in order to save his labor, makes an improvement in his machinery. In this case, people will look upon his motive as a good one, and finding no name for it that carries a good sense, they will be disposed to keep the motive out of sight. They will speak, rather, of his ingenuity, than of the motive which was the means of his manifesting that quality. Yet, in all these cases, the motive is the same. It is neither more nor less than the love of ease. It appears, then, that there is no such thing as any sort of motive which is a bad one in itself, nor, consequently, any such thing as a sort of motive which in itself is exclusively a good one. And as to their effects, it appears, too, that these are sometimes bad, at other times either indifferent or good." and this appears to be the case with every sort of motive. If any sort of motive then is either good or bad on the score of its effects, this is the case only on individual occasions and with individual motives, and this is the case with one sort of motive as well as with another. If any sort of motive then can in consideration of its effects be termed with any propriety a bad one, it can only be with reference to the balance of all the effects it may have had of both kinds within a given period, that is, of its most usual tendency. What, then, it will be said, are not lust, cruelty, avarice, bad motives? Is there so much as any one individual occasion? In which motives, like these, can be otherwise than bad? No, certainly, and yet the proposition that there is no one sort of motive, but what will on many occasions be a good one, is nevertheless true. The fact is that these are names which, if properly applied, are never applied but in the cases where the motives they signify happen to be bad. The names of those motives, considered apart from their effects, are sexual desire, displeasure, and pecuniary interest— to sexual desire, when the effects of it are looked upon as bad, is given the name of lust. Now lust is always a bad motive. Why? Because if the case be such that the effects of the motives are not bad, it does not go, or at least ought not to go, by the name of lust. The case is, then, that when I say lust is a bad motive, it is a proposition that merely concerns the import of the word lust, and which would be false if transferred to the other word used for the same motive, sexual desire. Hence we see the emptiness of all those rhapsodies of commonplace morality, which consist in the taking of such names as lust, cruelty, and avarice, and branding them with marks of reprobation. Applied to the thing, they are false." applied to the name, they are true indeed, but nugatory. Would you do a real service to mankind, show them the cases in which sexual desire merits the name of lust, displeasure the name of cruelty, and pecuniary interest that of avarice? If it were necessary to apply such denominations as good, bad, and indifferent to motives, they might be classed in the following manner— in consideration of the most frequent complexion of their effects. In the class of good motives might be placed the articles of 1. Goodwill, 2. Love of reputation, 3. Desire of amity, and 4. Religion. In the class of bad motives, 5. Displeasure. In the class of neutral or indifferent motives, 6. Physical desire, 7. Pecuniary interest, 8. Love of power, 9. Self-preservation, as including the fear of the pains of the senses, the love of ease, and the love of life. This method of arrangement, however, cannot be but imperfect, and the nomenclature belonging to it is in danger of being fallacious. For by what method of investigation can a man be assured THAT WITH REGARD TO THE MOTIVES RANKED UNDER THE NAME OF GOOD, THE GOOD EFFECTS THEY HAVE HAD FROM THE BEGINNING OF THE WORLD HAVE, IN EACH OF THE FOUR SPECIES, COMPRISED UNDER THIS NAME, BEEN SUPERIOR TO THE BAD. STILL, MORE DIFFICULTY WOULD MAN FIND IN ASSURING HIMSELF THAT WITH REGARD TO THOSE WHICH ARE RANKED UNDER THE NAME OF NEUTRAL OR INDIFFERENT, THE EFFECTS THEY HAVE HAD HAVE EXACTLY BALANCED EACH OTHER the value of the good being neither greater nor less than that of the bad. It is to be considered that the interests of the person himself can no more be left out of the estimate than those of the rest of the community. For what would become of this species if it were not for the motives of hunger and thirst, sexual desire, the fear of pain, and the love of life? nor in the actual constitution of human nature, is the motive of this pleasure less necessary, perhaps, than any others, although a system in which the business of life might be carried on without it, might possibly be conceived. It seems, therefore, that they could scarcely, without great danger of mistakes, be distinguished in this manner, even with reference to each other. THE ONLY WAY IT SHOULD SEEM, IN WHICH A MOTIVE CAN WITH SAFETY AND PROPRIETY BE STYLED GOOD OR BAD, IS WITH REFERENCE TO ITS EFFECTS IN EACH INDIVIDUAL INSTANCE, AND PRINCIPALLY FROM THE INTENTION IT GIVES BIRTH TO, FROM WHICH ARISE, AS WILL BE SHOWN HEREAFTER, THE MOST MATERIAL PART OF ITS EFFECTS. A MOTIVE IS GOOD, WHEN THE INTENTION IT GIVES BIRTH TO IS A GOOD ONE, BAD, when the intention is a bad one. And, an intention is good or bad, according to the material consequences that are the objects of it. So far, it is from the goodness of the intentions being to be known only from the species of the motive. But, from one and the same motive, as we have seen, may result intentions of every sort of complexion whatsoever. This circumstance, therefore, can afford no clue for the arrangement of the several sorts of motives. A more commodious method, therefore, it should seem, would be to distribute them according to the influence which they appear to have on the interest of the other members of the community, laying those of the party himself out of the question, to wit, according to the tendency which they appear to have to unite or disunite his interests and theirs, on this plan, they may be distinguished into social, dissocial, and self-regarding. In the social class may be reckoned, one, goodwill, two, love of reputation, three, desire of amity, four, religion. In the dissocial may be placed, five, displeasure, in the self-regarding class, six, physical desire, seven, pecuniary interest, eight, love of power, nine, self-preservation, as including the fear of the pains of the senses, the love of ease, and the love of life. With respect to the motives that have been termed social, if any further distinction should be of use, to that of goodwill alone may be applied the epithet of purely social. While the love of reputation, the desire of amity, and the motive of religion may together be comprised under the division of semi-social, the social tendency being much more constant and unequivocal in the former than in any of the three latter. Indeed, these last, social as they may be termed, are self-regarding at the same time. Footnote. Religion, says the pious Addison, somewhere in the spectator, is the highest species of self-love. End footnote. End of Part B of Chapter 10